want to invite you to have a seat. And uh, as you do, I just want to say this. I'm, I'm so thankful to be back. Some of you greeted me for the first time this year, uh, this morning, and that's true. I haven't been here for a while. Uh, I, I did a visit one time, and uh, or visit. I was here once in January, and it was a privilege. But I just want to say it was good to be away, but I'd, not, I'd rather not ever do that again. And I always want to be here on Sunday mornings. Um, I love this place, whether I'm preaching or not. But I'm also thankful for Pastor Chris. Um, are you thankful for Pastor Chris? He's able to, able to open the scriptures, uh, able to be uh, faithful uh, in season and out of season. I'm thankful for this brother. If you really are thankful for him, I think a round of applause is wonderful. But I would encourage you, would you tell him how God used the time that he was in the pulpit uh, to encourage him. They're getting out of here. I'm going to get to them in just a second. But, uh, yeah, make sure that you give uh, Pastor Chris a high five and a hug. Maybe even write down so he can keep it and he won't forget easily um, how God used that sermon series to encourage you. Uh, Gray Station and Blue Station are getting out of here. And so Blue Station, uh, they're going to be learning this morning about the Tower of Babel. Uh, Blue Station is uh, ages three to five. So if this is your first time, uh, if your kids are ages three to five, they can, they can exit now. If they've not been signed in, you probably want to go with them. Make sure they get checked in. Uh, as far as the Gray Station, they're going to be learning the answer to this question, what is baptism? What is baptism? The scriptures teach us that baptism is the washing with water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you have any further question on that, uh, you can ask one of these Gray Station kiddos. They're going to help you out. I'm going to read an excerpt of an article to get the sermon rolling this morning. I found this article very interesting. It was located on NBCnews.com. This is what it says. Pay attention. This is shocking. That urge to share a juicy piece of news when you hear it is part of who we are and a natural characteristic of the species we've become. We tend to think of gossip as a negative behavior. When, for instance, we tattle on someone or share information behind someone else's back, that may show them in a bad light. But it's really not, McAndrew says. By definition, at least the definition social scientists use to, who study gossip, gossip is any talk about someone who isn't present, isn't usually about some, or uh, is, it's usually about something we can make a moral judgment about, meaning you tend to approve of the information or disapprove, and it's entertaining, meaning it doesn't feel like work to do it. You tend to want to share or hear the information, McAndrew explains. It's not inherently bad, and it plays an important role in keeping our society connected. Maybe you're not as shocked as I am about that article. It's not inherently bad, gossip. And it plays an important role in keeping our society connected. This morning, I'll submit an installment to the How to Destroy a Church series. And regardless of what is espoused by Dr. McAndrews and NBC News, the Bible clearly teaches that gossip is neither healthy nor a helpful social behavior. On the contrary, gossip is a clear way to destroy a church. This morning I've got five questions that I want to offer to you. And we'll try to answer those questions from the scriptures. 
So I want to encourage you, if you've got a place to take notes, there'll be lots of things to write down this morning. And I believe not because it's my wisdom, but because we're going to be looking at the scriptures and becoming clear on what it is the, the scriptures teach in connection with the subject of this very article, gossip. The first question that I'll ask and work to answer this morning is this, what is gossip? Well, Oxford defines it as casual or unconstrained conversation or reports about other people, typically evolving, involving details that are not confirmed as being true. And I think to get started, that is a helpful definition. Here in just a moment, after we look at a few texts, we'll look at another definition for gossip. But gossip, it's the sort of behavior that was warned about by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5, particularly verse 13. It'll be on the screen for you this morning, I believe, as well as in your copy of God's Word. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 13. The Apostle Paul Caring for this young, fledgling church full of, of young believers. He's instructing them in the way of the Lord. Instructing them in the way and application of the gospel. And he warns them. And he says in verse 13, besides that, speaking of widows, they learn to be idlers. Going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. Now he's speaking to a specific group of people. And obviously, at this point in time, this particular church was wrestling, at least some of their members, and probably all of them, was wrestling with this temptation towards gossip. That's not just the widows, but it's all of us. All of us having indwelling sin in us. All of us tempted to do what Paul says we should not. And often doing it behind somebody's back. And so we know, just from the context of this passage, that gossips say what they should not. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 13, has something to say about gossip as well. Chapter 11, verse 13 says, Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. But he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. The idea is harming someone's reputation. Going about and revealing things that otherwise would not have been known. Harming somebody. Hurting their reputation. Often behind their backs. Not in their presence. A few chapters later, Proverbs 17, verse 9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Notice here the matter is a true matter, repeats a matter. The matter is a real thing that happened in time and space. And it says often when you repeat a matter, you separate close friends, the best of friends. Church, there is a magnetism in each of us to reveal secrets. There's a magnetism in each of us to gossip. There's a myriad of other passages that we could look at this morning as we try to gather some information and piece together a definition. This morning, preemptively, I want to give you my definition of gossip. Gossip is a conversation about an absent person that ultimately does not serve to build the person or to build up the person discussed, but instead tears them down. 
I'll say that again. Gossip is a conversation about an absent person that ultimately does not serve to build up the person discussed, but instead tears them down. What's gossip? I think that's a good working article, uh, definition. And I hope you agree with me. And we'll continue to establish here uh, what that definition actually means by going to the next question. So we tried to answer the question, what is gossip? We did so briefly. Let's ask this question. What's wrong with gossip? Now, each of us would agree that there's something wrong with gossip. But what is it actually doing? Why is it wrong? Why are we told not to do it? Why is this article in great error? Well, I want you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. I imagine you, many of you wondered if we would get to this passage as we consider the topic of gossip. Largely from this passage is where I got the second portion of the definition. That does not serve to build up the person, disgust, but instead tears them down. That's really the point of Ephesians 4. So turn with me there. Particularly, we're going to be looking at verses 25 and 32. But before we actually look at 25 and 32, we're going to have to look at verse 17 to 24. So let's start there. Verse 17, Ephesians chapter 4. Get a little background. Get a little context. And then we'll jump into verse 25. This is what the scriptures say. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. That you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him. As the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In the next few verses that we read after verse 24, we're going to zoom in. And we're going to talk about specifics. But to introduce the concept here in these first few verses that we've read, he speaks in generalities. He frames the context for what is to follow. And he's telling the church at Ephesus, he's telling young Timothy, don't walk as unbelievers walk. Don't do it. Why? They're still darkened in their understanding. They're still alienated from God. They're separated from God. The the teachings of God, the, the wisdom of God is foreign to them. They don't want to listen to God. Why? Because their hearts are callous. Their Their hearts are hardened by the deceitfulness of this world, by the lust of their flesh. But Paul is convinced, though, that the audience that he's speaking to That this is not true of them, at least not anymore. And so he says, you've learned Christ. At least I think you've learned Christ. And remember, what did you learn in Christ? What does the gospel teach about your new life in Christ? He says, in Christ, you're to take off the old self. 
You're to put that away. It's dead now. It's, it's stinky, right? It's filthy. Take off the old self. Take off the old clothes. They were part and parcel of the wicked life that you lived before, but now you have a new life. Put on the new self, the apostle says. The new godly clothes, which are Jesus' very clothes that he has provided for you. Ultimately, he's saying you're to follow Christ. His teachings have begun to renew your mind. You had this old way that you used to live and to think and to act. But now there's this new way. Stop living the old way. Start living the new way. To boil it down, he says, start thinking like Jesus. That's the general idea. But what does that actually look like in your life? What does it really look like to put off the old self and to put on the new self? Well, in case we get confused or it goes over the head of the Ephesians and young Timothy, Paul gets very specific there in verse 25. And so now we're into the specifics. Now we're into the nitty-gritty, right? Verse 25, therefore. What's the therefore, therefore? He's saying you used to have this old self. Now you have a new self. You have the ability to put off the old self and to put on the new self. Because of that, what should you do? What would that look like in your life? Saint at Hagerstown Church, it would look like you having put away falsehood. It would look like you not saying things that aren't true. That each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Why? Because they're of the same body as you. We are members one of another. It's not just you and God, but you, church, have been called out of darkness into light, and we assemble together at the Lord's table. And when we come to that table, we recognize that we are one body. We are one family. We put away falsehood because of that. Verse 26, it says, specifically, what does it look like to put off the old self and to put on the new self? It looks like being angry and yet not sinning. That's four or five sermons in and of itself. We need to know how can you actually do that. We're not going to jump into it today. But there is a way for you to be angry in a way that looks like Jesus, that looks like God the Father, and yet your actions that flow out of, that come after your anger are not sin. We're not to let the sun go down on our anger. We're not to become embittered against one another. Why? Because we are members of one another. Furthermore, we have put off the old self. That's the way of the Gentiles. That's our old clothing. In Christ, we have new selves. In Christ, we have new clothes. We can wear those things now. We can be angry and not sin. We can choose to not be bitter one against the other. We can choose to not, as verse 27 says, not give opportunity to the devil so that he can break up the division or the uh, unity of the body of Christ. Furthermore, in Christ, with this new body, with this new self, with these new clothes, we can stop stealing. We can earn our own 
honest living, working with our own hands, not taking from one another. As a matter of fact, not just taking and stealing from one another, but on the opposite, giving as anyone in our body has need. That's something that we can do. He has met our needs graciously and kindly. And now because of that, we can put off the old self and not live in scarcity of resources. But say that our good God that has given us salvation, that has given us his son, will he not also give us graciously all things? So we don't have to be afraid of lack in this new self. This is specifically what it would look like, not just in the Ephesian church, but in the Hagerstown church. He goes on to say, don't let any corrupting talk come out of your mouth. That's the way that you used to be. The Gentiles had to do that. What does corrupting talk mean? It means to destroy. It means to break down. Some of you might think, well, uh, th those must be four-letter words that my, my mom would always warn me about. And maybe they're in there, but corrupting talk means any sort of talk. Any sort of talk that would tear down and not build up. Regardless of the actual verbiage that's used. He says, you used to live that way. The Gentiles, they're bound by that, but you're not bound any longer by that. Now you can actually use your words to build up. It's the exact opposite of corrupting talk. Furthermore, he says, you used to be uncontrolled. And regardless of the occasion, you would just say whatever you wanted to say. But now, as you put on the new self, you're able to say things that fit the occasion. And not just avoid awkward situations, that's not the point. But you can now, because of this new self that you've been given in Christ, that is the very righteousness and holiness of Christ, as it says here in this passage, now you can actually talk in a way that builds up. Verse 30 says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You've, you've been, the work of Christ has been applied by that same Spirit. Don't grieve Him. Live in the way. Put this clothing on. Live in a way that is consistent with the righteousness of Christ, the new self that you've been given. Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Put that away from you along with your old self. Let that go by the wayside. Don't put it in a junk drawer. Put it in the fire. You don't need it any longer. You don't need it. Let it go. Let it, bitterness and wrath and anger, clamor, slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, hatred. And instead of that, when you take those things off, when you take those aspects off of you, those actions, those inclinations, what are you to put back on? Well, you're to put on, put on kindness towards one another. It's part of the new self. You're to put on a tender-heartedness. That's a big word, isn't it? Tender-heartedness. That's what you're to put on. That's, that's part and parcel to the new self. You're to forgive one another. The very opposite of bitterness and wrath. And I love the, the reasoning here. The illustration here, the allusion here is to Christ. All of these things embody who? All of these sorts of new self 
qualities, they all embody who? Even as God in Christ forgave you. If you were to look back at verse 24, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Christian, you can put that on. You can put that on. In your mind, compare these two lists. One regularly is building or tearing, tearing down and the other is regularly building up. One destroys the unity that has been given by the Spirit and one not only protects it but magnifies it in a real way. As we compare these two lists, we see that one is embodied by Satan himself, the accuser of the brethren, the one who was self-serving, the one who tempts and drags down and creates division. And then the other standing opposite to him is the eternal son of God, who is the righteousness of, Christ, of, the righteousness of God revealed to us. And not just revealed, but extended to us. And not just in some sort of a judicial sense, yes, when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. But in a very practical, real sense, we have the righteousness of Christ to put on, and not just as clothes, but as a body. Able to now act with righteousness and holiness. Able to follow in the steps of our Savior as Christ has acted toward us. If we were to zoom back out and consider the life of Christ. In verse 17, we were out and we said, this is what Paul's saying. There's the old self and there's the new self. The old self destroys and the new self builds up. Specifically, what does that look like? We zoomed in and we said, in the local church, this is what it would look like. And ultimately, it was pictured very specifically in the forgiveness that God had extended to you and to me. And now we'll zoom back out. And I want you to see this. How has Jesus acted toward the church? In Matthew 16, verse 18, there's a great context here. But you understand it briefly. Jesus speaking to his disciples, specifically to Peter. He says, I tell you, Jesus says to Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now the main point of this passage here is that there is a testimony that Peter has given. That Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one that had been foretold from ages past. And Peter says, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, that's right. And on that rock, Peter, I'm going to build my church. But I want you to catch this. The point is that Jesus is the rock. But I also want you to see that Jesus promises to do what? To edify his church. Jesus promised to build up his church. Who has also promised to destroy it? Satan. I love that great reformation hymn. Satan, he would love to destroy us. But we have what? We have a mighty fortress. And he will absolutely build his church. He will defend us. Everything that our Savior does, everything that our Lord does is to the point of building up his church. Think about that. 
broadly speaking, we gather from the entirety of the scriptures that Jesus, in every one of his actions, is working to build up the church. Everything he does helps the church. And if you were to say it again, well, what's wrong with gossip then? Gossip is sinful. Gossip should be avoided. Why? Because it does not build up the church, but rather it destroys it. We're often like the father of the Pharisees. Where Jesus said, you are like your father, the devil, when you act like him. We're never more like Satan than when we work to destroy the church. And think of this, we are never more like Christ than when we work to build it up. If I were to offer you a main idea this morning, it would be this. Gossip destroys, but we, like Christ, are to build up. Gossip destroys, but we, like Christ, are to build up. Way of transition to the next main point, the main section of the sermon. I want to just throw this out there. Some of you are going to snicker and laugh. The average person, according to most studies, uses 7,000 words a day. Some of you are thinking, well, Josh, you're about to use uh, uh, 5,000 just in this two hour sermon. And that's true. So, this is the average. Some of us are higher and some of us are a little bit lower in our word count. But if you were to think that 7,000 words this day, give or take a few thousand, will exit your lips and could potentially be used to either tear down and in that way emulate the God of this world, emulate the old self, that was alienated from God, or in those 7,000 words, you have the opportunity to build up. And in that way, wear and show forth the righteousness of Christ and look like your Father who is in heaven, who at this exact moment builds up. Well, in order for us to know and to be on guard with those 7,000 words, give or take 7,000, we need to know how to identify gossip. So how do you identify gossip? This is section number three in the sermon this morning. Stated negatively, gossip destroys. It's communication that destroys the unity in the church. It dismantles it and it harms the members of the body. And that's one way that we can identify gossip. Words that come out of our mouth that often are used to destroy individuals or the community of the church. But I think on top of just recognizing that this is what it looks like. It looks like destruction. It smells like fire and things falling down. I think it would be helpful to, to, to list out a few questions. And so I've got three questions to help you avoid gossip. As we work through these, I want you to, to think about these being put in a tool belt of sorts. The scriptures teach us that the Spirit of God has given us, given us already unity and that we protect that unity and we can protect it with uh, being on guard and asking questions like this. And so one of three questions, here's the first, is it true? So you're about to talk, you're about to use one of your 7,000 words or a few of your 7,000 words. A good question to ask yourself is, is what I'm about to say 
true. Now, I'm not so foolish to believe that most of us just walk around and use 7,000 words a day to tell lies. Even the worst of us wouldn't do that. But what we often find ourselves doing is saying mostly what is true and a little bit of what is not. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16 warns us. This is the, one of the ten words given to us by God. What does he say? What does the covenant Yahweh say? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. There's no qualifiers. There's no opportunities to, to say, well, only but only in this circumstance you can. It's very clear. You're not to bear false witness. You're not to lie. Verse 25, just a moment ago in chapter 4 of Ephesians, stated clearly, Therefore, having put away falsehood, along with the old self, the old self that was darkened in its thinking, you put that away along with falsehood, its foolishness. It's part of what alienated you from God to begin with. Put those things away. Now you don't have to. You have the righteousness of Christ, and you can walk in righteousness as well. Let each of you speak truth then with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Proverbs 16, verse 28. Again, it warns us. A dishonest man spreads strife. And a whisperer separates close friends. A dishonest man. A liar. One who says 90% truth and 10% lie is spreading what? He's spreading strife. Again, there's often a desire to embellish a story to tell it. We overemphasize an aspect that further corroborates our case, establishes our position. And yet we are commanded to tell the truth and only the truth, nothing more than the truth. And so before you speak, brother or sister, what does the scripture encourage us to ask? Is what I'm about to say true? Ensure, brothers and sisters, that what you share with one another, that it is not a false statement or a false testimony against your neighbor. Sad reality is a few things destroy a person like a lie that's been spun about them. Slander. Gossip includes falsehoods often, and yet even true statements about others can also be classified as gossip. And so there's other questions that we need to ask. Gossip is mostly true, as a matter of fact. And so the second question we need to ask is, yes, it may be valid, but is it necessary for me to share this piece of information at this particular moment? Look back at verse 29. There's a phrase in that verse that I think is often overlooked, and yet it is wildly powerful and helpful, especially in this context. He says, let no corrupting, let no tearing down sort of communication come out of your mouth. Guard every 7,000 plus or minus word that you share today. Make sure that each of them build up. And make sure that it builds up, but it also fits the occasion. Fits the occasion. Another way to pose this question, is it necessary, is to ask, does this conversation, what I'm about to share, does the information fit the occasion? Does it fit the audience that's present? Now, we'll dive a little deeper into this here in just a moment as we 
work to understand why it is that we're so attracted to this terrible action. But before we get to that point, let me just say this. Consider who you're speaking with. There are things that you can say that are true. And there are things that you should say. And yet there are times when the thing that is true and the thing that needs to be said does not need to be said to the person that you are speaking with. Are you tracking? Are you following along? Is this the right person? If you're the speaker, ask, does this who I need to, is this who I need to share this with? And if you're the recipient, ask, am I the one who needs to hear this? Oftentimes the answer to that question is no. To illustrate a bit of this point that I'm making this morning is, or I should say the scriptures are making this morning, is to take a look at the, uh, the, uh, the etymology of this word gossip. I'm just going to quote right out of uh, one of my books that I've read this week. A, a gossip was originally a rather more serious and worthy person than they are now. In Old English, the word was spelled God-sib, God-sib, and it meant Godfather or Godmother or something like that. Literally, it was a person related to one in God. So you hear that, right? God and then Sib. Where do we use that word or that, that, uh, that root? Sibling, right? And so they're a God sibling. They're a relative to you in God. And in medieval times, a, a gossip or a godsib was a close friend or a person with whom one would gossip. One would use uh, family sort of conversations. They would, you would talk about family business with this godsib. Why? Because in God, you were related to them. And so the information that you were talking about was, well, privy to them because they were part of the family. And you can imagine that this word became slang. And it became, it became a word that wasn't uh, given to a worthy person, but an unworthy person. Somebody who casually would have conversations about other people's business. Them, them, they themselves having no business in talking about those things. It's interesting. And I think it underlines this idea of, is it necessary for you to have this conversation. The person that you're speaking with right now, do they need to know what you're about to say? It's a great question to ask. And so is it necessary that you share this? Is it true what you're about to say? Before you speak, you need to consider your audience. You need to consider the truthfulness of that. But you also need to ask this final question. Is it helpful? Is it helpful? What do I mean by helpful? Look at verse 29. Again, we're not to let corrupting talk come out of our mouths, but we're only to let what is good for building up. So we're not to allow conversations to come out of our mouth, words of our 7,000 to come out of our mouth if they tear down, but only that which builds up. Why? That it may give grace to those who hear. Before you say what you are thinking to say, ask, will this be helpful for the recipient? Will it help them to think and act biblically? Will it, will it help them to honor the Lord Jesus Christ? Or will it also, in a sense, kind of erode their righteousness? Will it erode their desire to, to build up and to strengthen the body? Furthermore, what you're saying to them, is it helpful to the person of which you're speaking? Likely they're not there. Rarely gossip occurs, almost impossible for gossip to occur 
while the person you're gossiping about is present. But is it helpful for the one that you're speaking to? Is it helpful for the one that you're speaking about? Does it tear down or does it build up? Does it help them to think and act in a biblical way, those who are hearing? And if you're the hearer, will it help you to emulate Christ to know the thing that you're about to be told or that you are presently being told? And so how do we know if something's gossip? Well, we can begin by asking these three questions. Is it true? Is it necessary? Is it helpful? Prevalent, persistent, this plague of gossip. And you may be wondering, why? Why is it so alluring? Why is it so challenging for us to take that off and to put on this new self that we have been commanded to give? I've got three reasons. We'll work through them quickly. The first is depravity. Depravity, it simply means corruption. We corrupt with our language. Why? Because we ourselves are corrupted. There's none of us that do not have some level of indwelling sin in us. Jeremiah 17, 9, that great prophet, he said this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The heart is deceitful above all things, and it's desperately sick. It's desperately sick, and you can't understand it. And he's not talking about the neighbor that you're wanting to gossip about. He's talking about you. Your own heart is depraved. Apart from the miraculous birth or worth of the spiritual rebirth, we are full-on corrupt. And even after the new birth, we still have indwelling sin. We still have this desire, this lust that rages within us to gossip. This has been mostly me talking and you listening. But I want you to participate here for just a moment. I want, I want you to answer this question. Do you believe that your heart is sick? Do you believe that? The scriptures teach that it is. Do you believe that? Now, I want you to interact. I want you to tell me somehow. I'm not sure. What kind of crowd am I dealing with here? Do you believe that? Yes or no? A few of you. Okay. Well, let's see if I can get a couple of more of you to admit this. If you would admit that you are sinful, that your heart is sick, can you also admit that you are tempted to gossip? Let's go to raising our hands. Raise your hand if you've ever been tempted to gossip. Okay. Let's take it to the next step. Say it out loud. I am prone to gossip. Say it. I think that is a really helpful step for all of us to take. Why? Because there's so many sins in our lives that what we do is we say, I would never be guilty of that. That's a terrible and sort of heinous thing to do. The only sins that I'm guilty of are the ones that are sort of respectable, at least in our culture, right? And I think it's helpful for us to all say, there's nothing that you've ever read, either in the Bible or the newspaper, that you yourself are not capable of doing. We've got to start there. Why is gossip so persistent in our lives? Why are we still talking about it so long after this great book of Ephesians was given? Why? Because we are still prone to it. We still like it. Let's take it one step further. You've said that your heart is sinful and wicked. You've said that you're prone to gossip. Now would you say with me, I have been guilty of gossip. I'll say that first. I have been guilty of gossip. Can you say that with me? I have been guilty of gossip. 
This is one of the reasons why it persists. We've all done it. We're all tempted to it. We are depraved. And that contributes to our fleshly desires. But Proverbs indicates that not only are we depraved, not only are we corrupted, is the image of God not lost but broken in us, but the book of Proverbs says that we like the taste. The book of Proverbs says that it's delicious to us. We've gotten a taste for gossip. Proverbs 18 verse 8 says this, The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. What comes to mind when you hear the word delicious morsels? <laughs> oh, some levity there. We love the taste of all sorts of things that God has graced us with. And sinfully, we love the delicious taste of gossip. Whether it is being on or whether it's on our lips or whether it's on our ears, we love it. If we're honest this morning, we will admit that gossip tastes good. Gossip feels good. I love that verse, verse 8 in chapter 18 of Proverbs. They go down, these delicious morsels, into the inner parts of the body. You know that feeling after you've enjoyed that wonderful meal, that comfort food. And you sit there with a look of either disgrace or satisfaction or maybe a mingling of the two. It's gone down into the inner parts of the body and you're satisfied. And yet with the delicious morsels of gossip, it's difficult to actually be satisfied. We have to be careful here. We have to be on guard. The, the scriptures are telling us that there's something that you like the taste of that you should never taste. Be on guard. Be careful. A diagnostic here would be when you're talking about somebody that's not present in the room, are you enjoying what you're sharing or not? And if you are, why? What about that tastes good? Are you building that person up? Brothers, that tastes good. It surely does. But perhaps it tastes good because you're tearing them down. And so our hearts are wicked. They're depraved. And furthermore, we like the taste. And so we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful. We are depraved and it is delicious. But also I want you to know, and this is a bit of a stretch, but I went for it. It's defunct. And that's kind of a fun word. We don't use it that often. What does it mean? Well, it comes from the, the prefix D or day, which means what? Off or, or, or from. And funked means functional, working. And so it's defunct. It's non-operational. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, the components of gossip are partially Listen, they're partially what we are supposed to do, but we don't actually execute the function, this desire, in the proper manner. And in that case, our conversation is defunct. Let me say it another way. What, what if I told you that there was a proper outlet for you to talk about someone else's weakness? What if I told you that there's a proper outlet for you to talk about somebody else's sin, especially if it's a sin against you? That sort of, sort of perks our ears, doesn't it? Well, it's exactly what we read in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, this is the teaching of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
speaking in, 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 in chapter 18, particularly verses 15, 16, and 17. This is what he says. If your brother sins against you, you're going to want to talk about it. Do it. But go and tell him his fault. Who should be there? Who else should I tell? Is it necessary that others be there? No. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And I love this. If he listens, if she listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two along or others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Do you notice that word tax collector and Gentile? That word specifically, Gentile actually. It's the same word that the Apostle Paul uses of those who are still donning the old flesh. And so if this brother or sister that you thought was a brother or sister will not turn from your, their sin, when you confront them between them alone, you're to treat them ultimately after all the stages are complete as a tax collector. Which is to say what? There's somebody who would prefer to wear the old self. And they don't want the new self or they don't have access to the new self. That's the reality. The point is, the reason I bring this up is we all have the natural desires that are good and necessary, or not necessarily sinful. But only if they're realized in accordance with God's commands for us. I'll give you an example. How many of you would agree with me to say that we are created to eat food? Each of us. Some of us are like, you've lost me now. All I can think about is curry. All I can think about is pot roast or ice cream. We know what Miss Susan is thinking about this morning. And maybe even praying. Food tastes good. Why? Because God made us to eat food. He gave us this desire. It's natural. It's beautiful. There are other desires that we have, humanly speaking, aside from our appetite for food. There's an appetite for sexual intimacy, again, given to us by God. And yet there are ways that we can express or access or give in to these godly desires in a way that would destroy both ourselves and those with whom we interact. What does the scriptures teach us? Eat food, but do not overeat. Be intimate, but only in marriage. And stay married. One man, one woman, faithful to get to forever. That is biblical marriage. And so what's the point? Verse 15 specifically instructs us to do what? To talk about that person's sin. But to who? To the one who has actually sinned. The article that we opened with, it encouraged us. Spreading rumors about people who have behaved badly allows our friends and acquaintances, acquaintances to know who to trust. And the threat of gossip deters bad behavior in the first place as people seek to avoid developing a bad reputation. In some ways, they're not wrong. But isn't it far more beautiful to live in a society to live in a community where we don't live in fear. But we live with love, knowing that when we sin, 
our brothers and sisters will be bold. They'll speak the truth. They'll do so in love. They'll come to us and they'll tell us and we don't live in fear. I love what my D group read this week. We're reading through the book of Acts. And the apostles and the disciples are in a room and it says they prayed for boldness. And what happened? The Holy Spirit came and shook the place and let them know, hey, I'm with you. I'm present. And what does it say? They went out from there and they spoke the word of God boldly. Oftentimes we have love one for another. And we know the truth about each other. And yet we don't have the boldness to go in light of the gospel, which does not bring condemnation, but brings life. We don't have the boldness to confront. We don't have the boldness to share. I pray that we would be a church that would know the truth, that we would love one another, and that we would have boldness, not just to preach the gospel to everybody else, but to preach the gospel to ourselves, to preach the gospel to each other. Both philosophies encourage talking about the sin of others, but only one actually builds up the person. Only one actually builds up the community. The other creates fear. The other creates pain. We gossip because we were designed to talk about the failure of others, but not behind their backs. No, we are to do so to their face. We're to talk about it in a way that builds up. Church, all of us are depraved. All of us have a taste for gossip. We're all tempted to be cowardly and not to confront, but instead slander and gossip. And so what are we to do? What are we to do? What do we do about gossip? This is the final point. And I've only got two lines really to share, and we'll unpack them quickly. The first is we're to cease and desist. Cease and desist. We're to stop it. We're to use the tools that the scriptures have given, has given to us, and we're to stop it. I've already presented some questions that you were to ask yourself before you communicate, before you use your 7,000 words, you ask, is it true? Is it necessary that I tell these people? And is it helpful? Does it build up? But how do you handle a situation when somebody is gossiping to you? I love the question that Brett has offered to me. I've used it and he has, and we've used it with each other, mostly him to me. He asks, is this gossip? That's a great question to ask. That's a good question because none of us are above it. And so if you're in the middle of a conversation and you're wondering, I don't know. There's information that's coming out right now and I don't have the time to process its truthfulness, its necessity, or, or even its helpfulness. We just stop and we say, is this gossip? It's not an accusatory question, but it is a pressing one. And it's a helpful one. Simply asking that question allows the conversation to be assessed and even jettisoned if necessary. And so ask, is this gossip? Here's another question that you can ask if you are imagining or wondering if you are the recipient of gossip. Another question you could ask is, have you brought this to their attention? The person that we're talking about right now, do they know how you feel? Have you told them? Do you know or do they know if they've sinned against you? Have they been made aware at this point? And if the answer to any of those is no, then the conversation should be shut down. Why? It's not biblical. It's not edifying. It's not helpful. So when we think about 
gossip. There's never going to be a change, not in this life, not until we are glorified, not until the final state will we not have a taste for gossip. And so, brothers and sisters, we have to be on guard. We have to be on guard. Cease and desist. Avoid all appearances, all manifestations of gossip. And second, what are we to do? Well, we're, we're to repent and believe. We're to repent and believe. What do I mean with repent? Well, we're not just to stop gossiping, but we are to strive to be enlightened by the gospel, to avoid the old self, put on the new self, and the new self that has been instructed in Christ says, this is wrong, it's bad, it's not helpful. Not only are you to repent, to have a change of mind about gossip, and strive toward that end, but you're also to invite others to do the same. We all admitted how terrible of people we are. And all the visitors are ready to run for the door as soon as the closing song starts. We've admitted that we're gossips. Can we also admit that we need to repent? Each of us. And if we do repent, and if we call another to repent, what is the promise to us? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins. He's faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteous gossip. Yes, he'll cleanse us from that as well. But if we say we've not sinned, if we say we have not gossiped, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. And so we believe, we repent, and we believe the gospel. By way of closing, I want you to just to think about three words. Gospel, gossip, and trinity. Think about those three words. When you think about communication of the Spirit, when you think of communication of the Father, when you think of the communication of the Son, as it relates to the terrible things that you've done, I want you to think about how they've acted. What does the Holy Spirit do in light of your fallenness, your brokenness? Does he go to someone else? Does he tell another of your sinful wickedness? No. He goes to you. Does he try to tear you down? No. What does the scriptures teach us? That it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. How can you repent if you haven't had the word of God come to you and been applied to your heart? That's what the spirit does. He convicts us. And maybe you're here this morning experiencing for the very first time in your life the powerful working of the Spirit of God as he points out your wickedness right now. And notice, it's not on the screens. It's not written on the walls. It's not being declared by your neighbor. It's the Spirit of God in the quietness of your heart, really acting out Matthew 18. He's going to you and he's telling you your fault. And he's saying, <laughs> I'm not condemning you, but I'm pointing out your sin so that you can be healed, so that you can repent and, and turn and receive life and fullness of life and not live in fear any longer of being found out, but live in the light. The Holy Spirit, what does he do? He convicts of sin. If you're here this morning and you're being convicted, I would encourage you, I beg you, lean into that conviction. Thank God that he's bringing it to your attention. And by faith, 
Would you turn to Jesus and receive salvation, forgiveness? What's the Father doing right now? As we think about the gospel, as we think about gossip, and as we think about repeating your wickedness and your terrible deeds, and we think about the Father, what is he doing now? Well, I can tell you this. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He loves to gossip. He loves to slander. He loves to bring you down. He loves to remind you of your brokenness. And yet the Father, does he listen? Not for a second. He's taken our sins from us and he's thrown it as far as the east is from the west. Furthermore, what does the, the book of Hebrews say? The book of Hebrews says that he will not remember your sin. Will he listen to the slanderer? Will he listen to the gossip that is thrown at him against you? Absolutely not. He'll not hear of it. But what of the son? The one who has borne our sorrow and our shame. The one who was smitten and stricken and cursed of God because of us. What is he doing? <laughs> He's not repeating your sin for your shame. He is lifting you up to the Father. And he's saying the good things about you. He's saying, yes, yes, those things are true. What the accuser has brought to your attention, dear Father, is true. But let me tell you something that's even greater of this brother. Let me tell you something that's even greater of this sister. He has my righteousness. He has my holiness. He's walking in newness of life. Think about that. Church, let's worship that kind of a God. The God that reveals himself to us and says, I'll not condemn you. I'll convict you of sin and I'll invite you in. And I'll throw you at sin as far from the east as to the west. I'll not remember it any longer. And when somebody comes and brings it to my attention, I will correct them. And I'll plead my own blood on their behalf. Church, gossip destroys. It destroys. But we, like Christ, are to build up. Let's pray. Father, we behold our God. What mercy that you would be the sort of God that would do the things that we've talked about today. We're a group of people that have just admitted publicly how wicked we are, how broken we are. And yet, you love us. We have no reason to, to hide. We have no hope to hide. We've got no need. But we know that you are our defender. Father, we pray that as you defend us, that we would defend one another. Father, you promised us that we had a new self that was the very essence of the righteousness and the holiness of you. In faith, we put that on now. Father, we want to look and act like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we pray that you would give us the faith to believe that we can. And God, as we emulate our, our Lord, as we emulate our King, we pray that you would build this church up. And Father, we ask again, if there's somebody here this morning that for the first time is sensing this conviction, that they wouldn't see it as condemnation, that they wouldn't 
shrink back into the darkness and continue to be alienated from you. But that they would see the love of Christ. That they would see the kindness of the Spirit in revealing their sin. And that they would walk boldly before you and in the name of Jesus ask for that forgiveness that you've promised. We pray that that would happen today. Father, we ask all of these things in the mighty name of Jesus, the one who forgives.